0: Welcome to the latest edition of the Carmichael Governance Podcast. I'm Dermot Kerr CEO of Carmichael. Carmichael is a charity that provides supports to other Irish charities, particularly in the area of governance. You can find details of what we do and a wide range of free resources on our website. That's carmichaelireland.ie. You can also find previous editions of our governance podcast on our website or on your favourite podcast platform, be that Apple, Spotify, Acast. Today, I'm speaking to Anya Myler, CEO of the Charities Institute of Ireland, about her career journey to date, but also looking at the evolving landscape for charities. Anya, you're very welcome. We might just start, if you could introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your career journey today, because when I've asked these questions my guests, we find that a lot of people have a very career to date. So it will be interesting to hearing your career journey today.
1: date. and thanks for having me today. My name is Anya Myler, I'm the CEO of Charities Institute of Ireland. I've been enrolled for about 18 or 19 months at this stage but I'm not from the sector per se. I've had what people like to call these days a portfolio. And I started off many, many, many years ago working in the property sector as an administrator, as a receptionist, as an office manager. And over many years, I undertook part-time study. I became a chartered surveyor. I became consultant advisor to a lot of different clients. But actually, my work started to progress into the public authority arena and working for a lot of not-for-profit organisations, in particular religious organisations. And I suppose through that sort of consultancy work, I started to have a real appreciation of the work that's done by the not-for-profit sector in so many guises across the country. You know, through my work even with those organisations, I came to work on some of their committees and on their boards. And yeah, it gave me a really great sense of the whole spectrum of work that's undertaken in the country in the not-for-profit sector. And when this role became available about 18 months ago, I thought it's a perfect fit for some of the experiences that I have, both in the commercial world and also in the representative arena, because I had previously run another membership body as well, which is what CII effectively is. And I thought, you know what, time for change, time to add to my portfolio. And it's been a fantastic experience to date.
0: Quite a range of experiences, but also perspectives, which is very valuable in the role that you that you currently have. And just looking specifically at the charity sector, the operating environment has changed radically over the last ten years. is very different from when I came in. It's twelve years since I came into the charity sector. There has been a lot of major changes. For you, what have been the sort of ones, the standout changes that has happened in the last number of years? Maybe
1: not being from the sector. I haven't travelled the journey the way some other people have, so I probably have a slightly different perspective on it. Although I do remember when the Charities Act itself came in because I remember being at a conference that actually discussed the implications of that for some of the groups that I worked with at the time. And I think probably that's the main change, isn't it, in the sector, that sort of formalisation, legislation, regulation piece. Albeit, to be fair to the sector they had developed the Voluntary Governance Code, which is pretty much what we have, even still today, maybe expanded on, obviously, by the regulator in the meantime. But I think that recognition of the formalisation of the not-for-profit sector has been evidenced through, predominantly through that sort of legislative and regulatory change. And I think... The emphasis on governance over the last number of years through a number of maybe high profile cases that brought it maybe into more stark relief albeit that happens in all sectors for me i have to say one of the things that probably gets me most i won't say excited but possibly annoyed is that constant harking back to that piece of scandals and i say that in inverted commas because actually so much happens that's far worse in the commercial sector And yet the contagion effect that happens in the charity sector is something that still takes me by surprise, to be honest with you, it really does. And I think it's something that necessarily bodies like ourselves, you know, I know Carmichael do great work too on the governance front of things, um, but I think just from a representative and advocacy point of view, it's something that I feel very trenchantly about that that needs to be pushed back on because this, I suppose, moralistic almost holier than thou sort of sense that pervades that discussion really, really irks me when I think that there are over 11,500 registered charities in Ireland and we are talking about a tiny point zero zero percentage of things that happen. And yes, they're bad. I mean, I'm not saying that they're not. But I think for me, what's happened in the meantime is there's been a significant professionalisation around even small charities operations and That's fantastic. And that's all for the public benefit. There's no two ways about it. But I think what hasn't happened in the meantime is the recognition that to be regulatorily compliant, to deliver best practice, to deliver all of that public benefit, that all costs money, effort, time, commitment. And while we have the time, commitment and effort piece, we don't necessarily have the funding part right at this point in time, particularly around funding specifically for governance and best
0: practice. I agree. When I came in from the private sector, I, what struck me even then was the amount of scrutiny that charity organisations have to have on them, but also this contagion effect. I couldn't get over, you know, it's a plague in all your houses when there is a scandal that everybody, they're all at it, sort of. There are, as you mentioned, bad behaviour, bad governance, and, and spectacularly bad governance in all across all sectors, but it just seems to get particularly acute when there is one in the charity sector. And you're quite right, we cannot condone bad behaviours, bad governance, because, because of the trust uh, that people have in charities. You mentioned the whole regulatory environment that has changed in the last 10 years. Apart from the sort of, and I do agree, the sort of this increased compliance burden on organisations that comes at a cost, what other impacts has there been by this more structured and more formal oversight mechanism driven through the charity regulatory authority and the charity regulator? Um,
1: well, for me, I suppose it's the wider awareness, maybe within even the public concept around what the structure of an organisation looks like. I I do think that we still are challenged, though, on that basis. When I consider what the trustee of a charity has to do uh, and the the kind of responsibilities that they have, we have to accept the fact that actually in Ireland, we don't have a huge corporate governance environment that people work in. And necessarily then, a lot of the people of the skills and the expertise that we draw onto our boards are from people who work in small and medium-sized enterprises they're cold coming into a corporate governance type structure that applies now in the charity sector. So I go back to that point that I made earlier that what I don't see is a connection between the requirement to adequately resource that aspect of the charity sector, when in fact you're calling on the expertise, let's say it's HR, let's say it's IT, let's say it's legal, let's say it's financial, all of those areas of expertise and skills that you need on a board. And yet most of the people who are putting themselves forward are coming from a non-corporate structure in that respect. So they don't actually appreciate the breadth of responsibility that they're taking on. So I see some change in that respect. I think people are definitely becoming far more aware of it. But I think in the growing awareness, it's actually creating a challenge to actually get people to come then onto boards when you see certain things happening and it's not a charity but let's just reference the latest thing that happened for instance in RTE and I'm sure I don't know but I imagine those directors are probably paid directors on RTE to you know I mean I myself am on a, a statutory regulatory board myself you know and you understand the breadth and the nature of what's required I'm not sure everybody would be willing to put their hand up now so in some ways As I say, that regulatory change has been great. But I think the lack of resourcing, you know, I know Carmichael did fantastic training around this aspect of things. But, you know, you know that there are 76,000 trustees in Ireland. Have you trained 76,000 trustees? I imagine not. A fraction of that, you know. And I think that's still part of the mismatching kind of issue that's happening out there. I mean, obviously, CII, our cohort of membership are predominantly the what we consider to be the professional charities. So, you know, they have employees. In fact, our membership has over 25,000 employees, so really quite a significant reach. And they represent something like 40% of the public funding that goes into the charity sector. So they've all the challenges of what, what every business has, what every organisation has. But they also have all of the challenges around this additional layer of governance that still is isn't really anchored as valued, I don't think, in either the public psyche or, frankly, in some of the policymaker's psyche either.
0: Very true, and and you mentioned charities institute is primarily a membership organisation. So you would be at the sort of cold face of a lot of issues and concerns that your members would have. What are the sort of ones that you hear most about in, currently in terms of what are the big concerns of your membership? As you say, represents forty percent of of the, the funding that the sector gets. So it's quite a significant cohort,
1: for sure. Well, I mean, I think like every business in current economic climate, recruitment and retention is top of the list, really, for everybody. And part of that is because, you know, there's great competition out there for skills and an awful lot of the skills that people have and, and develop in the not-for-profit sector are highly transferable. Uh, and I think, to be fair, because they're very purpose-driven and mission-driven, you really have a fantastic cohort of people working in the sector and you can just imagine the competition for those skills out there in the private market charities can't compete at salary level they can't really compete with the, the other additional terms and benefits pension levels like private health insurance like parking i mean you go you know the list is endless isn't it uh, and so the sense of trying to rely on somebody just being mission driven or purpose driven is not sufficient and it is it's becoming a real i won't say it's quite a crisis yet. But I do think that we all operate on relatively thin structures anyway. I don't know anybody who has any kind of a job that's like a nothing job in the charity sector the way that I've seen it in the corporate sector, you know, where, frankly, you'd call it actually what value some roles bring to an organisation. That doesn't occur in the charity sector. So when somebody, you know, leaves, it leaves such a significant void, and that's at all operational levels. So I think... Finding more agile ways to potentially recruit people. I mean, we had a conference very recently talking about this and all the effects of that, the burnout effect that that has. But one of the things that we had was a speaker there, Dale Whelan, from the 4-Day Week Global Initiative. And, you know, you look at something like that and you think, is this the next move for the sector, that do we own that space? Because we can't compete at salaries, and and frankly, we're curtailed not just by our own funding, but by public perception with regard to these things, and albeit that I wouldn't necessarily agree with that either, and we can get the whole of the conversation about the overhead debate, Um, but I think that um, in the meantime, we see good examples coming out of the UK around being more agile about the ways of work and i think charities are probably best place to do that because they themselves are working with service users who want more flexibility even in how they you know engage with your services is it nine to five anymore hardly so maybe there's opportunities in that space but key recruitment and retention are one of the big issues
0: yep and i i, I hear that as well so that it is a, a big issue and also something a little thing that irks me is the view that a lot of people and i've heard it from politicians i think is that you know it's all run by volunteers so what do you need money for, for to be paid you know pay so there's, some, there's there is a big vast army of volunteers but it does need a, a professional workforce to to make the best use of a volunteer input so it's, it's one of those things looking ahead um, and and we are in a globally or in a very uncertain time but specifically zoning in the charity sector, what do you see as the big themes of in terms of 24 and beyond in terms of what you see coming down the tracks or something that the leaders of the sector need to start thinking about because you know, these, are, these are the ones that will focus the, the minds of the chief executives and the boards in, in the next 24 months?
1: Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think obviously for us, you know, even just looking locally, I mean, globally we have very little control, don't we? Locally, though, we'll have the local elections next year, we'll have the European elections, and then we'll have a national election. And I think that sort of manifesto building piece and that influencing piece has to start now. And even yesterday, we had a fundraising forum that we hold three times a year. And we were lucky enough to have some representatives there from one of the political parties talking about, you know, the kind of things that you'd put on a manifesto and keep it to one page because, you know, 10 pages aren't going to be read, etc. Because to be fair, they're getting them from everybody. But they did talk a lot about, you know, making contact with your local politicians and trying to influence. And actually what really struck me was that the sector forgets or maybe doesn't really appreciate the power that it actually has. You know, when you consider what you just said there, Dermot, about volunteerism in the sector, there are 650,000 people, one in five adults of the total adult population in Ireland, volunteer in some way or another. And I'm sure there's a whole other cohort who donate. So what charities often do is they activate citizens to come along and support their purpose. There's a clear connection between the activation of citizens and citizens who vote. So in fact, we are a powerful lobby we actually create the very environment that politicians should be looking to harness for their own benefit. That circular kind of sense of influence There seems to be a gap in that at this point in time. So I spoke to this yesterday, this very point. I said, let's not forget now. We're asking for something, but they should be asking for something from us. Because frankly, we're politically neutral, but we're not policy neutral. And I think that politicians need to consider the social cohesive effect that charities have to hold the middle. Because that's what we're trying to do at this point in time. We're trying to hold the middle in this country with the polarisation that's happened in society. Charities... And I'll say the same for sporting groups and arts groups, actually creating that sense of what our civil society could, should and does look like. And there's massive political leverage, for want of a better word, or influence in that. So I think what we'll be looking to do over the next year, two years, ten years, is to create that sort of sense of, actually, we're important. One in eight people are employed in the charity sector. We're as important as the construction sector. We're as important as the agriculture sector. But a lot of that's overlooked because those services are dissipated across a number of different delivery lines, like health, for instance, like education, but actually through charities. And I often say, actually, there isn't enough public awareness, and that's our job too, without a shadow of a doubt, to appreciate what is a charity. So your National Gallery is a charity, Beaumont Hospital is a charity. If you're stuck up the side of tool in a storm, that mountain rescue that comes to take you down off the side of the mountain is a charity. The helicopter that flies you up to Beaumont is a charity. So I think that connectedness and awareness building is an important thing. But very initially, our focus is going to be on um, an election, frankly, where there could well be a change. I mean, because of our PR nature of voting here in the country, very likely to be a coalition change but nonetheless there will be a a change again as I say we're politically neutral so we'll talk to everybody but I think we'll stand in our own power in a way you know to say that actually we're not filling gaps we're not doing any of those kind of nice little things nice to have on the side here not at all we're actually systemically important and in fact because of what we do and the way we activate citizens we're also political influential
0: yeah I, I think so something i think eaten bread is soon forgotten i think there was a great recognition of the power of the sector during covid but also with the ukrainian war and the country gearing up to absorb significant numbers of people and, and rightly so but the glue in all of that was the, the community and voluntary sector rising to the challenge and working with other partners that was recognized at the time but it, 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 i get a sense that that has dissipated again and yeah. it's that, that awareness that constant trying to get People to recognise that this is important, and if you underinvest, it has consequences. Um, which brings me to so the Charities Institute's vision, which, and I'm, I'm reading it here from because I took it from your website, and it's a very powerful v- vision statement. and It says, An Ireland that trusts and values charities for the positive contribution that they make to solving challenges in our society. That really gets to the heart of what we've just been talking. In your role as chief executive and with your board, what sort of actions do you think are necessary to achieve this vision? And who are the other actors? Because you know we're part of a, a wider process. We're not an island. The sector in itself cannot create the, real, the realization of the vision. So, what sort of things are you planning to do, or you or, or would you like to see happening?
1: Well, I think you know we recognize all of the usual stakeholders in that. You know, which is obviously policymakers across all political parties. It's uh, regulators across all different you know regulation uh, entities, and there are a number of those, and our own members and beyond into the sector. But actually, for me, and I say this regularly to my own team, we have to stop talking to ourselves. And sort of one of our, you know, even funding kind of diversification models is corporate partnership. But actually, that's not just about the funding piece. It's about the influencing piece. And I think through those connections and the creating awareness and I don't mean I know a lot of people talk about corporate CSR and things like that and the SGD you know, this is much more fundamental it's that sort of recognition of standards and you'll know because he came to it I think Dermot recently we showed a movie that was based on the work that Dan Pallotta who was an advocate for charities operating at the best and highest professional level we showed that recently but what we're looking to do and a lot of people from the sector came to see it and you know some policy some politicians some media but what we're looking to do is expand that message out into the corporate world and we've got some plans to do that over the coming months to land the concept in the wider business community of actually the benefit that they see that there's a really good civil society because there's only so much the business community can do because at the end of the day like I'm from that sector they're in business for one reason and one reason alone and that is profit end of story and yes they can have fantastic corporate social responsibility programs and they can have their esg thing and i'm sure there will be absolute great corporate partnerships and there have been between charities and business to develop that side of things and to make the employees in those businesses connect with that specific charity but for me it's something much more systemically valuable i need the corporate sector to be our advocates I need them to say, actually, our sector is as important to the business community at large because that means that they can step into their own, you know, profit-making agendas. That's fine. But in the right context for the civil society that we all need to operate in and the right economic model that we all need to operate in. So business knows that. It can't just be government and business. They recognise the fact that actually the third leg of the stool is is civil society and I think all well and good we're advocates for ourselves we need to create other advocates and for us that's very much around the corporate and business and harnessing the power that they obviously have in creating that sort of economic dialogue. I mean, I know we're invited to speak at various different things and to make submissions, but actually talking about ourselves to ourselves is one of the big problems I foresee in this sector. We need to widen the conversation. So that's probably our aim, very specifically, in the next few years.
0: And I, I would see that very important. One other one, and it's probably part of your, your plan, but the other critical ones I see in all of this in, in terms of influence and direction of travel is the policymakers. And, and we've talked about the politicians, but the, those public servants who are critical Um, how are you engaging them how do you plan to engage with them to sort of because they can can have a huge influence in how things shape over the next while so
1: I think one of the things that you know is important in that context is understanding what's important to them you know and maybe helping them solve their their problems in that respect and I think some of the really great organisations that you'll see national you know charities that's what they've done they've actually gone into their own line departments and said What's your challenge and how is it that we can help you with that? And I think that's going to be our approach across the board with regard to whatever line you're talking about here. I suppose what I'd like to see more of, and it's certainly something that we're advocating for, is that sort of sense of if you're developing a policy, how about running it through a civil society test to kind of stress test it against. If you're not going to consult with us in a more systemic way, and that's certainly something that we'd like to get more of, but I think that civil society test, now I don't want it to be a tick box exercise either, but I do think that where it's very specifically going out into the ether, it's going to be a policy, maybe a change of direction of the government. Well, either consult with us or at least have this civil society test piece that you could actually maybe just, you know, pilot something against. But we are ready, willing and able to, to work with rather than against you know and i do think that advocacy thing is it's a fine line you should be able to advocate a hundred percent right but we do have to at all times because of that polarization that's happening in society like it's not black and white there are so many gray areas and we're here to help in all of that
0: I, i'm hearing you and, and, and but but I, I'm, I'm i'm thinking of some recent examples of where if there was a more of a partnership approach and a dialogue things would have been easy. I, I'm, Use the example of the Charities Amendment Bill that has, you know, it's neat, a lot of the provisions are very, very much needed, but there was an awful lot of serious flaws in that that could have been avoided if there had been that an earlier dialogue and say, look, this in practice would cause difficulties, or have you thought through the implications of that? So the fantastic work that yourselves at the Wheel and Mason Hayes-Curton did in providing a very, very good critique of those weaknesses have been very valuable, but it has been delayed the legislation. So I just using that as an example of the approach could be more 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 collegial. You know, yes we have different perspectives, but there is a benefit in having those early discussions, those tests, those screenings, those sort of tests to say, well, how would this look like and you know, we are the people on the ground, we're the ones that are dealing with the the challenges of implementation of of these new arrangements. Yeah,
1: I think that um that collaborative governance movement as well, you know, where I've sat at presentations about it and I think how far is this going to go because actually again, we're kind of talking to ourselves is what we want, but you need to embed that into the public service, don't you, in a way. And I'd say actually in much the same way what we're advocating mostly at the moment about is the gambling regulation bill. And albeit naturally nobody wants to see any gambling harm done. It's a public health issue, there's no two ways about it. And The latest ESRI report actually really changed the nature of, you know, the measurement of what gambling harm is out there at the moment. But no consultation with our sector, which consequently leads to, you know, having to lobby against what is effectively actually a really important public health piece of of legislation, but to try and carve out a position that recognises the fact that the the kind of activities that that Charities undertake, which might technically be termed gambling, but actually have the least impact on the gambling harm index, and they're about, you know, fundraising and and raising awareness for a campaign, and that genuinely comes about through lack of consultation. So I think sometimes, particularly around legislation, legislation emanates from a different department entirely to your line departments, and so you have very little control over it. But actually, making the connections outside of your own political domain. Obviously, our line department is the Department of Rural and Community Development. But actually, we need to foster a relationship in the Department of Justice because actually, that's where the legislation is going to come from. Yeah,
0: and it is that wider awareness of the potential impacts. I genuinely think that they didn't think about the charity sector and the needs of the charity sector when they were crafting that legislation.
1: Well, in a good way in the sense that they they themselves don't see fundraising, raffles, lotteries that charities undertake actually as gambling. I mean, I really do believe it was as benign as that. But nonetheless, what we have now is sort of a malign outcome from that. So, yeah,
0: these un- unintended consequences yes. that can have big impact on the sector. So again. Yeah, I I hear it, and I do see um, lots of things that we've been pushing for, and a lot of it is that practical common sense. If we have regular engagements where there is dialogue and constructive dialogue, things can be improved, the quality, the co-designing of legislation is important. Because you have the charity regulator who say, I have to stick to my remit, I'm not in the policy remit, so, you know, don't come to me saying there is a problem with the, the policy you need to go to the policy framers nice. yeah and yeah. Um, that's important what additional supports would you like to see to support this what we call it the ecosystem for the community voluntary sector
1: Well, I mean, I you know I go back to that sort of membership base that we have, which is very specifically around professional charities. Albeit that we'd want to see good, you know, happen in all of the sector. But for us, even in our budget submission this year, we were looking for parity of esteem. And what I don't understand is why things like the digital skills initiative, eighty five million fund there that was released in last year's budget, or was the year before, to the private sector, to small and medium sized enterprises, why is that not available to the charity sector? When actually, in the program for government, their whole thrust is for a digital first economy, and yet you can't apply if you're a charity so I don't understand those things I don't understand why SkillsNet is not available to charities I don't understand why we have to have separate schemes so actually what I'd like for government to do is actually just treat us the same as everybody else and give us access to all of the supports that are out there for businesses because that's effectively what we are we're businesses in most contexts I mean I know when you get down and maybe into the smaller community groups there's a whole other cohort of funding that might be required about that but I want to stick specifically to the sort of supports that I am going to advocate for on behalf of membership, and because they are all effectively businesses employing people, I think, why have you separated out these two things? It actually makes us different, and we're not. You know, we're not in terms of the skills and the organisational expertise that's required, so give us access to those things. So that would be one thing, for sure, apart altogether from the additional funding for the the governance, because that's just a whole other area of cost.
0: One topic I've meant to ask, and I'll ask it now, because given your particular interest in the whole area of fundraising, and I've seen stats where there has been a dip. Has that recovered, or are there still challenges?
1: I think there will always be challenges in fundraising, um, but I think, to be fair to the fantastic people that work in that sector who develop the most amazing campaigns, it has regenerated. Not all of the lines have regenerated in the same way. So, I mean, obviously, door to door fundraising on the street fundraising maybe not the same or direct marketing might be other I mean some of it is due to just cost increases you know yourself direct marketing is about reaching out through post to people and the change increase in postage from 2017 to today I think it's it's something like 60 or 70 percent so you can just sort of see the way the cost of everything gets in the way of trying to do what you want to do but actually other ways have really improved around corporate and things like that and obviously we're really excited about the the new philanthropy policy that's being developed because you know charities see themselves in that space as being the recipients and the utilizers of that you know maybe big chunky pieces of, of funding that might come down the line so I think To be fair, to the fundraising charities, they're always looking at what's the next thing. And for them, actually, a lot of them are gearing up and and building capacity, you know, to be able to report, to be able to manage potentially what could be big influxes of funding, which is philanthropy. But in general, no, Irish people have maintained their generosity. And albeit they may be expressing it in slightly different ways, might move through individual challenges so that they give to the charity directly then themselves rather than, you know, they want to to undertake a task or whatever it might be. In fact, most of our organisations report really strong fundraising, albeit they are very concerned about what the impact of the gambling regulation bill could have on some of those activities.
0: Okay, this has been fantastic, Anya. My last question is what I ask all my guests is, is the magic wand question. So, for you, what would be your top three wishes for the sector over the next five years?
1: So, I think for me, it's more um, about that parity of esteem thing. I would love in 10 years' time, actually, for the for us to be consulted, to be a a systemic part of what's seen as the economic kind of dialogue in this country, that the value of the sector is recognised. So that would be very much, you know, number one wish, you know. Um, I think that that discussion around overhead, that perception that, you know, all money has to go to the cause, and I say that in inverted commas, and actually there's a far greater appreciation of all of the support structures that are required to run a highly regulated highly effective, impactful organisation. And there's no dissent about that. So I would love to see that. That's for absolutely certain. And then I think maybe just in a bigger societal way, that education actually encompasses discussion around not-for-profit. I mean, you and I have both sat through college courses or secondary school courses about economics. Did you do a module on the not-for-profit economic model? Not once, you know. So I think actually sort of embedding that in education as a societal good, you know and there's an economic value to it because it's part of the circular economy kind of context that we all want to talk about those would be the three big things
0: great ones and there you are putting me back into my school days and my college days but really until i actually came into the charity sector i didn't really have a an understanding of the range the complexity of of the sector you know you, you a lot of misconceptions um so that is one of the challenges but it's been fantastic. Thank you so much. We've covered a lot of ground here today. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Dermot.
0: Thank you for listening to our latest Carmichael Governance Podcast. We hope you enjoyed it. If you did, it would be of great benefit to us if you could give it a rating, as that helps to create greater awareness of these podcasts. So until the next time, slán go fóill.